0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, prolific business author and speaker, John Acuff.
1: One of my personal soundtracks in life is like, it'll either be a success or a story. Like, I'm going to get one of the two things out of it. And it might take me a while to see the story. It might take me a while to appreciate the story. But like, all right, well, let's, let's try this thing. Um, and let's, let's see what happens. John shares lessons on leadership and life
0: from his best-selling books.
2: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience write new content faster, sell more and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R.com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing.
0: Shani Cuff is the author of seven books on personal growth. He's written bestsellers including Finish, Give Yourself the Gift of Done, and Start, Punching Fear in the Face. His books and videos on building a fulfilling life attract millions of readers and viewers. Much of his work is funny, very funny. In fact, John's big break came through a website and blog he started writing back in 2008 called Stuff Christians Like. It was a parody of another popular blog called Stuff White People Like. On his blog, John would write about crockpots and side hugs and other earnest things he'd notice about his fellow Christians. The blog caught the attention of business guru and media entrepreneur Dave Ramsey, who would go on to offer John a job. John grew up in Massachusetts, outside of Boston. His dad was a Southern Baptist minister in a town of mostly Catholics.
1: We lived in Ipswich, Massachusetts, which was my favorite place I've ever lived, north coast of, uh, or north shore of New England. It was every picture of New England you have, um, you know, lighthouse, clams, and there was a beach. Our mascot at our elementary school was the clams, which is a terrifying mascot. Because if a clam is coming (laughs) at you, you have at best three weeks to get out of the way. Um, We are the Doyon Elementary School Clams. And so, yeah, it was, I actually loved it. I loved that experience. And I, I always tell people that, You know, watching my dad communicate ideas, um, because that's what I am now as a communicator, watching him need to do it with humor and insight, because there wasn't any cultural Christianity like there is in the South, where in the South, a lot of people say, I grew up in the church, so there's a shorthand. In the North, he didn't have that shorthand, and I really got to watch him to see what he did and go, oh, that's how you share an idea. Oh, that's, you know, now that I write business books, I I try to do the same thing with businesses.
0: I guess, I mean, I read that, that when you were a kid, your dad would take you to comedy clubs, which, I mean, that, that doesn't, like the sort of the stereotypical kind of view of a Baptist minister is not necessarily somebody who would take their, their kid to a secular comedy club. But Clearly, your dad was a little bit different.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think he. I don't think he fit the the box of you know what somebody might say. Okay, well, here's what comes along with being um, a Southern Baptist pastor or or a Southern Baptist or a Christian. And so, yeah. I'm, I mean, I remember seeing Brian Regan when I was 18 and thinking, Oh, wow. This is a this is a different thing. Like this feels comedy feels like some sort of different magic. And I think and humor in our family was a currency. So hmm. if you didn't have like a, you know, level humor at the dinner table like you you were like all right, I got to get out of here. My I'm I, we just grew up with that being a thing that we all cared about. To this day, my dad who's in his late 60s will call me and go hey, did you see that thing Jon Stewart said? Or hey, I saw this comedian and here's how I framed this line. And so hmm. I think it was a love of ideas. It was a love of communication and it was seeing humor. Like in my opinion, great humor is a vehicle for truth. Yeah. Like I'm of the school of Chris Rock where he says, you know, there's some things people won't listen to unless they're laughing at the same time. Yeah. And that's what I now
0: do. I love that Chris Rock quote so much because I think it's so true. People do connect over laughter. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds simplistic, but it's quite a deep idea.
1: Yeah. It's, and it's one that's guided me for a long time. I would say there's a handful of things like that that have guided kind of my career. And that's, that's one of them. Another one of them that I just think about all the time is Dorothy Parker, the writer, said, creativity is a wild mind and a disciplined eye. And the wildness is uh, you fill up your head with all these different topics. What, you know, guy said on a podcast, something your kid said, you know, your neighbor's, you know, horse's name, all these different things. And you have this huge collection and then you have the discipline to see the relationship between them in a way that feels fresh and different and hopefully sticky. And so I love when I find kind of true things like that, that I can go, this is a really interesting thing to add to my collection of thoughts that guide me.
0: Were you like that as a, as a young man? I mean, before you, you started the career that we know you have today, I mean, were you, like, a good student? Were you, did you have clear goals as a... No, no, no. What were you like as as a kid, I mean, in school?
1: I would say, like, a good way to know what I was like is, like, when I meet somebody that knew me in college, I apologize. Like That's my first thing I say. I say, oh, I'm so sorry. One of the things that a lot of people don't know is that when you're a pastor's kid, there's this level of entitlement that can develop hmm. because you're almost this mini celebrity. Like when yeah. you show up at church, it's like, oh, there's the pastor's kid. And I was really drunk on that from an ego perspective. Huh. And people are always buying stuff for you or like, wow. you know, picking up your meal at a restaurant or like, we feel bad. So we're going to send you on vacation because you don't have a lot of money. So like it develops into this. If you're not careful, And certainly not every pastor's kid. I can't, I'm just speaking from my own experience, but so I remember freshman year of college, I went down. I went to school in Birmingham, Alabama, a huge Massachusetts sized chip on my shoulder. Um, like, oh, this Yankee, like, what is you know, what does Birmingham know? Kind of thing, and was just a huge jerk. Got rejected from every fraternity, ended up getting a 2.4 for the semester. And they told me, you know, you're going to lose your scholarships because you need a 3.0. And so at Christmas, I kind of just buckled down and was like, okay, I got to come back a completely different person. And I did, and I ended up getting a 4.0 and saving the day. And I used to tell that story like, oh man, look what I was capable of. And now, like I was telling my oldest daughter that story and I was like, I don't like the character in this story. Like, cause it's really a story about misused potential. Hmm. And so no, it took me until I was really in my mid thirties to kind of figure a lot of things out. I would, I would say I'm a late bloomer.
0: After college, you, you sort of got jobs doing copywriting ad ad writing
1: yeah it's one of those um one of those things that i really love the potential of advertising to change somebody's mind in, in an encouraging way um to say hey here's here's something you haven't thought about or here's you know advertising copyright good copywriting always leans toward action yeah and so i really kind of fell in love with with that idea i fell in love with words um and so I, yeah, I, I got a job at a small ad agency in Birmingham, and then I moved home um, and got a job at Staples. Their corporate headquarters is up in Massachusetts, and then kind of kicked around corporate advertising for a, for a number of years, working with brands like Bose and Home Depot, and and just had a blast learning so much about what it takes to communicate an idea.
0: This is in your in your twenties, in in sort of the. Um first part of the millennium the 2000s and did you have a plan did you know what you wanted to do or no no
1: yeah no no and what's what's funny is i told my wife um I was like, well, you know, your 20s, they always suck. Because you met her plan. early,
0: right? You guys. Met,
1: yeah, I met her. Yeah. Like, I just graduated. I was, you know, classic story, hot young copywriter. She was an intern. I mean, how how could she resist <laughs> that charm? I was making 24500 a year. Like, clearly, when you've <laughs> arrived, people take notice. But no, I told her one day, I was like, well, you know, your 20s, they just always suck, and nobody has a plan. And she was like, mine didn't. She's like, I had a plan. Like they didn't. And I was like, oh, okay. So you're saying, oh, so no, I didn't have a plan. I knew I wanted to write, but I, you know, like I was just kind of I realized I was jumping from opportunity to opportunity. Like anytime it got serious and they'd go, hey, we'd like you to think about being a leader. Or hey, what would it look like for you to, you know, step into a management role? I would leave that job and go somewhere else. Mm. And then have like another like I spend a year or two there and everything's great. And they go, hey, what if you took this? And I jump and jump and jump. So I never I never had a plan. I I felt like I was running away from something more than more than running towards something.
0: You also got into blogging. I mean, this is like sort of the beginning of the blogging explosion, like the early two thousands. And um in two thousand eight you launched. You launched your own blog, stuff Christians like, which I guess was a sort of a parody. There was a, there's a blog. 100 oh,
1: called... percent parody. It was a complete rip off. Like parody is a nice way for you to say that. Was
0: it? It was a stuff white people like. I think, right? Yeah, or, exactly. Right? Well,
1: actually, my first blog was 2001. I had a blog called SweetRaymond.com that did music reviews, and it was impossible to put together because you had to use Dreamweaver. Oh, you to build it um, with Dreamweaver. Yeah. Uh, it was. And like my thing is, I always, at least in the early days, I'd get an idea, I'd register it, I'd build a website, and then I would get merch. And, like, no content, no plan. I was like, we're going to need a lot of stickers, a lot of T-shirts. And my poor <laughs> wife was like, we have reams of terrible stickers in our closet. It's like an elephant graveyard of my bad ideas.
0: You would just have merch produced, like, for your Yeah, because I was
1: like, when I, I'm going to need to hand it right. out to people. Like, yeah. fans are going to want this merch. And my wife was like, but we, you don't even have any fans. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm going to, and they're definitely going to want stickers. We And we started, that was the first time I realized that we're in kind of a like a digital revolution or an even an identity revolution in the sense of, I remember I interviewed John, this guy, John Andrzejczyk, um, who was in this band Five for Fighting. They had this song Superman that was super popular. But so John Andresic, where I'm interviewing him, he goes, you know what it's like? I mean, you're a rock critic. And I wasn't a rock critic any more than I'm an actual rock. And I was like, wait a second. If I am, you know, position myself a certain way if I do the work if I build the thing I get to be almost anything I want with the internet and that was where I first kind of fell in love with it but I I mean I ended up getting discouraged on it took like seven years of not writing not doing anything and in 2008 started um, Stuff Christians Like and the first post was Stuff Christians Like Ripping Off Secular Culture because I just got tired of so many Christian things were watered down version of like the good secular thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, I'm just going to talk about that and use this vehicle as a funny way to talk about that. And so it was interesting when the site got big, people would be like, this is such a ripoff site. Like they wouldn't have read the first post. And I was like, I know. But yeah, I just thought it'd be fun. And I thought it'd be something I'd do for like five days, like my other ideas. And then by like, I think like day nine or day 10, 4,000 people showed up and it just started getting passed around. And people Hmm. started telling people were sending it to me going, hey, have you seen this? And I was like, I totally have seen it. I'm currently writing it. And and
0: what were you like? I remember stuff white people like was like you know Pabst Blue Ribbon or fixed gear yeah. bicycles. It was like things sure. like that. What would it be like that? Would would you just kind of like list a bunch of things?
1: Yeah, I mean, but it would be it would be more like it'd be stuff like um, wishing there was a way to tell people you direct deposit your tithe. Right. So I would do like a post about like. You know, wishing you had a shirt that you could wear to church so that I direct deposit my tithe. Cause like you hot potato the offering basket and it looks like you hate baby Jesus. And you wanna be like, hey, hey, we're still good. I've got it. I got a direct deposit. We're fine. Like, so it would be little things like that, that if you were. Going to church, or if you grow up in the church, you or like that Jesus doesn't like name brand cookies. You would never get an Oreo. You'd get like Hydrox, and you'd be like, "This sounds like a chemical you clean your toilet with." Like how? Like I know God created the universe and all his splendor, but apparently He doesn't have budget for name brand cookies. So it was stuff that like if you grew up in that space, you were like, "Oh, this this is my diary. Um, this is you know something I I relate to." And at the time, if I started it today. I doubt it would be as successful because there's now so many other people in the space. But at the time, and I was by no means first, but like at the time, there just weren't a ton of people doing Christian satire. So I think it was easier for it to stand out. All right. So, you,
0: so you're doing this blog and clearly it starts to get attention. I mean, obviously it's sort of a parody but, and that kind of gets you initial attention, but, but people really like connect with it. It's, it's, and it leads to an offer to write a book. Did that come out of the blue? Somebody approached you and said, hey, you want to you write a book?
1: Well, some people started to float the idea to me and I was like, I think I could do that. Um, I think maybe I I could figure that out. And that was, you know, I write about that in my most recent book, like this season where I just started to believe a handful of like thoughts that I thought... become true if I worked hard at them. Like, Mm. I think I can write a book. And so I talked to a couple people who recommended agents, literary agents. And so then I ended up getting two offers on it and we got $30,000, which was amazing to me. I mean, when you think about my first job was $24,500. But what was funny and I love doing this joke is that people were like, man, are you going to like quit your job and move to Mexico? And (laughs) I was like, you know, after taxes and agent fees, I got $13,000. Like if you want a $13,000, lottery, nobody'd be like, oh man, you going to Cancun? See ya. Like so it was yeah, so that's how it came about. And it felt like I can't believe I get to do this. This is gonna be really fun. And because it wasn't my full time thing, there was a different level of pressure. The pressure was lower. Yeah. You know, I was still I was working full- time at auto Trader I had freelance cl- I was writing like radio jingles for for tire stores like I was doing like laser hair removal radio commercials <laughs> like which I'll, you're gonna want to focus on like bathing suit season that's really the hook And clearly
0: like writing for ads and, and writing jingles for ha- laser hair removal I mean that that really does sharpen your writing I mean you had to write every day.
1: Oh, I loved it. I didn't, at the time, I didn't know. Like, I didn't know, like, that this is an education. But, I mean, I learned so many lessons. Like, okay, when you're communicating a new system um, for Bose, like, Bose has a new stereo system. Like, how do you communicate it in a way that somebody's going to understand it? Or, you know, who's our audience? So, I just had this really fun... You know, experience where they, yeah, I was writing, you know, hundreds of headlines and ideas a week, which is essentially what Twitter is. Um, So I was doing all this stuff, which is why, like, when somebody tells me I want to start a coffee shop, I'll always be like, well, have you worked at one first? Like, you know, sometimes I'll see photographers that'll have one good wedding season, they'll be like, I'm quitting my job as an accountant, I'm going photography full time. And they attach every bill and responsibility to this passion they have, and it gets crippled because they jump too soon. All right. So, um,
0: that book gets the attention of Dave Ramsey. How how does he, what happens?
1: Yeah. So that's, what's so funny is one of his, um, staff members was reading my blog. I don't even think the book was out yet and said, Hey, we should have this guy come up and speak at our, our weekly team meeting. So yeah, they have they bring speakers every Wednesday, and so I just went up there and I had written a speech and I gave the speech and it went really well. And they said, "Hey, you know what about coming up and being a copywriter for us?" And I was like, eh, "I kind of already have that job and I kind of like where things are." And so it just didn't seem like the right fit. And then I did it a second time um, a year after that. I did it a third time, and he bought a copy of my book for every staff member, which was amazing. It was definitely the most single sale of books I've ever had. And after he said, hey, let's have a meeting, and I was blown away. And he said, hey, I wanna show you how to do what I do. I think you could be a brand, I think you could be a speaker, I think you could be an author, and this could be your whole job. And at the time I was at Auto Trader, which was a great company, but I was using vacation days to go speak places. I was doing what I call the reverse Superman. So I'd go speak at an event, use vacation day, fly back to Atlanta, change in the bathroom at work, into my work clothes and kind of reverse Superman and then go about my day job. And so his offer was, you know, completely changed my life. Not only moved our family to Nashville, but showed me what was actually possible with the career I now do.
3: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombuscom slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
3: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel dot wisdom.
0: So in 2010, John Acuff leaves his job as a copywriter to take his shot at a career as an author and speaker, starting at the Dave Ramsey Group. And within three years, John publishes a book that really establishes his brand. The title of that book? Was
1: start. The thrust of it was starting to see, you know, people ahead of me, like 20 years ahead of me, 30 years ahead of me, people 15 years ahead of me, and going, wow, I think I can kind of see some chunks of things they're doing. Like, it's not that it's okay, here's the exact roadmap. If you do these three steps, this always happens. Because that's what I like to say to people is that I didn't write my blog thinking there's a customer call center person in Nashville, Tennessee, who's going to read this and invite me to come speak at Dave Ramsey and did it like, but I did have to write the blog. And so I don't like when people, you know, motivational people, business people, whatever say, if you do these seven things, this will definitely happen. I think life is way too unique for that and too chaotic for that. Um, But so I just started to see kind of patterns and go, oh, wow, that that's how they did that. That book came from that perspective of going, could there be maybe not, you know, prescriptive steps, but are there chunks of things that people do um, that I can write about?
0: I love how you divide the book into, into five stages, the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, which when you look at it, it makes total sense. It's very hard for us in certain phases of our life, certainly in our earlier phases, to kind of understand it. But um, let's start with the 20s, which is period you call the period of learning, which um, I think will resonate with most anyone who's who's either in it or been through it because um, this is a tough period of time for a lot of people, including was for, certainly for me. It was, it's a hard period of time because you're not sure. There's so much uncertainty about where you're heading and what all the things you do are, like what the purpose of it, of it all is.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's just this huge time of experimentation. I think part of the challenge is that it's very tempting for people in their 40s to ask an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, whatever, hey, what's next? What's next? What's next? And it comes with this sense of as if they knew at, at 19, right, as right. if they knew at 20. And so, and, and then the other thing is, I think there's this real temptation in modern self-help books, business books, whatever, to have experienced something that, you know, you were deliberate on that you were, that was amazing. But then you go back and you write steps for it that if you're honest, you actually didn't take. And so I think that's part of the challenge where I look at the 20s and go okay you're trying a bunch of things. Like when whenever somebody I'll I'll never forget I'll meet 22-year-olds that'll say, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Once in a lifetime and I go, I hope not. Mm. Cuz what if it what if it blows up? You're 23, <laughs> right. you still have 50 years of working and right. you've already blown it like it's just like remember that thing I messed up. So I love to tell people like You know, I think you should be brave at any age. I think it's realistic to say it's easier to be brave at younger ages because you don't have kids. You don't have mortgages necessarily. Say you're like, you know what? I've always wanted to be in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I've always wanted to do this type of business. Move out there for a year, like at 23, at 24. What's the worst that happens? At 25, you go, yeah, that did not work. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot about me. I learned a lot about, you know, what I like, what I don't like. And now I'm going to go back home to Boston, whatever. Mm. Um, so that's how I kind of looked at the twenties.
0: All right. So if the twenties are your period of learning, the thirties are a period of editing that essentially, I guess it's like, that's when you start to break down what it is you actually want to do.
1: Yeah. And so for me, what that looked like was I hit a, what I'd call a career ceiling where I was early thirties. And my wife kind of pointed out to me, Hey, um, if you don't wanna be a creative director, you're already at the top of the ladder. So I was a senior content specialist, which is just fancy for copywriter, and there was no super duper senior content specialist title above that. Like the only next step was for me to become a creative director or a manager. And she said, if you don't want to do that, we need to figure something else out, which was really, it was scary at the time to think, okay, I'm early thirties and I've already hit a plateau. Like you think they're going to come later. And so that's when I started to kind of edit and go, okay, I don't like this. I do like this what does it look like for me to get up early before work and write? What does it look like? You know, like, how do I start editing out some things that aren't important and putting more time for things that are important? And that's really where I started to freelance. Hmm. I did a lot of freelance writing in Atlanta, which was great exposure to other ideas, great practice. It brought in other income. Um, It fundraised essentially for me to have a blog. I couldn't say to my wife, Hey, you know how we have, like, we don't have a ton of money. We've got two kids under the age of four. I'm going to pay a designer to design a blog because it's big enough now. Like I needed to fund that with, you know, freelance writing. So that's really where I started to edit.
0: 40s is the period of mastering, beginning to master this thing that you decide to focus on.
1: Yeah, I've just, I am in love with the idea that so much of life is sticking around and i think there's this real benefit to that where you start to kind of stack up experiences and you start to kind of grow experiences and go wow i've i've done this before like i know for instance say I'm going to speak to Walmart, Um, I have a list of questions that I'll ask them before so that I can really serve the audience. And over time, I've really honed that list of questions so that I know what to ask. I know what kind of answers I'm looking to get. I know how to weave that into the keynote I do. I didn't know how to do that year one. I think that's where the 40s, you start to go, okay, I've stacked up some experience about that. That's when I think you continue to kind of master that craft.
0: Hmm. All right. The fifties, a period of harvesting is that I'm assuming that's when you begin to see the benefits of all that time and effort you put in.
1: Yeah. I think you start to see results. Um, and I would say this, so I have a, I have a podcast called all it takes is a goal and it's about goal setting. And it was funny. My wife said, I'm worried that you'll have, um, access to people you're not ready to have access to because you have a platform. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, I think because you have a platform, you'd be able to interview Jim Gaffigan and you, you suck at interviewing right now. It's just because you have a platform doesn't mean you should go, you're not ready. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But I've benefited from having an audience. So now when I start a podcast, it has listeners built in because I've spent X amount of years building relationships. And so I think it's, again, it's that, you know, you start to see some things come to fruition and, and I think it applies to parenting too, like that you're putting in time. Like I always tell parents, if you want a kind 16-year-old, teach a six-year-old kindness and give them 10 years to practice. Yeah. So I have to really work hard to do long-term feedback loops. But when I do that delayed gratification, it's so much better.
0: The 60s are a period of guiding. So that's mentoring and sort of using your experience to give back.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I and I think that the key there, what I feel like it's your job to go find the people to help. I think it's really tempting, even in your 40s, to be like, if somebody young wants my experience and my wisdom, they can find me and ask me questions. Like, that's not helpful. I wasn't doing that when I was 22. I needed and I benefited from people who are further down the path saying, hey, here's something I think is important or hey. I think you got some potential or, Hey, here's, here's something I think you should do. And then the other thing I always tell people, I think you should know somebody 20 years ahead of you and somebody 20 years behind you. Um, Because the person 20 years behind you is seeing stuff you're not seeing. Like I grew up in the old way. For me to do the new way, I have to first unlearn the old way. Somebody who's 22, 25 grew up in the new way. And so there's times where I'll bring them some complicated solution I have and go, no, there's this app that does that in like 14 seconds. We should just use that. And I'll go, I didn't know that. That sounds, yeah, let's do that way. Um, But it takes humility to kind of let somebody young guide you too in the things that they're good at.
0: All right. So this book um, gets some attention. Um, this first book that you, you, you put out, not just some attention, becomes a New York Times bestseller. And I guess that kind of prompts you to really go off on your own and kind of build a business around your writing and your speaking and, and your ideas.
1: Yeah, that was um, that was definitely where I thought, OK, I think I can try this. Even if I fail, I'll know I've I've tried it. And so, yeah, that was the start. And it was, you know, it wasn't impulsive. It was definitely, okay, I've got enough runway. I feel like I've got some relationships. I feel comfortable in Nashville. I think I can try this. Um, And, you know, I would say, again, back to my dad, every church planner is is an entrepreneur. Like everyone who plants a church, they might not be a business entrepreneur, but they're an entrepreneur at heart. Oh, yeah. where they go sure. like for my dad to say, OK, I could totally do a church here in Durham, North Carolina, or I could go to Massachusetts, which is very different and try that. And so I feel like I've come from a family that goes, all right, well, let's let's try this thing um, and let's let's see what happens. And that and that enthuses me and like it gets me really excited. I, I think that's part of, you know, what made me want to launch.
0: You know, it's interesting because you, you released Do Over, which is basically about reinventing work and, and not getting stuck. You released it, in, I think, in 2015, and it's the idea behind that book is so relevant in 2020, 2021, because as you probably know, I mean, I think in 2020, there were a record number of applications for new businesses, right? Like lots of people quit their jobs and are still quitting their jobs and are trying to figure out what to do because they realize, why am I doing something that I'm not fulfilled doing you know, a de- kind of a dead end job for an organization or mission I don't believe in. Like, what is the point of that? And I think a lot of that came into focus during the pandemic period, where people started to think, like, what is important in life? It, this is a time. This is a do over moment that we're living in.
1: A hundred percent. And I think it's really exciting. And the thing I, you know, and that's what's been fun about this season is so many people have reached out about that book to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the pandemic was a big do over for me. What do I, what do I do? But yeah. I had a friend say, um, what's fun is that you're young enough to still be making mistakes and you're honest enough to still be talking about them. And so that's what I like to do. Like, I like to try the thing and go, man, I tried this thing and it blew up. Cause I yeah. think there's so many people that are, you know, online saying like, "Hey, here's the answer. Here's the, like, I don't like speakers that only talk about the times they've won. Um, you know, and so if like my wife and I have a tough conversation, um, you know, like she said, uh, stop saying you have haters. You don't like, no one is actively thinking about you and hating you. You like to say that because it makes you feel important. I was like, come on. And she's right. And so like that, we like that, I'll share that and go like, here's something that blew up in my face or Hmm. here's something where I think it was 2009, I did a, uh, I did a meetup. I was like, oh man, the blog's going well. I'm going to do a meetup. I swear to you, I brought like 50 pounds of Skittles in small bags because I'd done a joke about Skittles. And I was like, there's going to be so many people there. And I was there for 90 minutes and two people showed up. Mm. And one was my buddy who was like, hey man, good job. And then one was this random dad that was like, I don't even read your blog, but my daughter does call her. And I had this awkward phone call with his daughter for 30 seconds. And then I sat there and I remember I told my friend, will you take a picture of me with all these empty chairs? (laughs) Because I knew that would be encouraging to other people. (laughs) And so I posted it. And so like, one of my personal soundtracks in life is like, it'll either be a success or a story. Like I'm going to get one of the two things out of it. (laughs) And it might take me a while to see the story. It might take me a while to appreciate the story. But, like, anytime I do a book signing, like, when people are like, how do you stay humble? I'm like, you do a book signing. Yeah. Because um, you think, like, you hear all these stories, like, Chip and Joanna had, like, there were people in helicopters and wrapped around the block, and, like, the police had to shut it down with fire hoses. And you're like, that sounds amazing. And you've done them. Like, you go there, and a lot of times, like, people come up to your table and are like, uh, eh, your life's work for 11 bucks feels a little steep. Or, like, they announce. I love when they announce in the bookstore that you're there, because, like, They say it like there's a thousand people lost in the store that don't know, like uh, John Acuff, who's a human you've never heard of, um, is over by the magazine (laughs) aisle, um, if you'd like to go. And so like, those are the things that I just like to communicate that way. And I think if I when I do that, it makes me more accessible and it makes me true. And then I don't feel like I have to perform as much.
0: And in 2017, John publishes a new book based around a simple question. How do you
1: finish something? I was a chronic starter. And as an inconsistent finisher. So I had this passion. Like, I was like, okay, I'm curious about that. Like, what does it take to actually finish? Like, all these people came up to me, all these readers, and they're like, hey, I like your book, Start. It's a good book. It helped me. But I've never had a problem starting. Like, I can start a thousand things. I have 50 GoDaddy URLs. How do I actually finish? And I thought, oh, we as a culture over-celebrate the beginning. Like, if you think about it, we say, like, ridiculous things like, well-begun is half done. Or the hardest part of any journey is the first step. What? What? We have launch parties. We have kickoff parties. I've never been to a middle party. Yeah. And so I, got, I get really curious about that.
0: I think this book was inspired by this idea that 92% of, of people who have New Year's resolutions don't keep them going, right? So it's, it's not surprising. Many of us start things and don't finish them. And I think some of us just assume, well, well, other people are more disciplined and I'm just not disciplined or I don't have the self-discipline to exercise every day or to to set a goal and to consistently do it and because I can't do it consistently then there's no point what's the biggest hurdle to for, for I mean is it, is it just a, a way of thinking I mean how do you actually how do you actually get people to change the way they think about goals
1: well I mean I think it's a couple of things one is um, I'm not a disciplined person like It seems like that online, like, I'm not really even a positive person. I work really hard to be positive. I'm pretty melancholy. Like, just the other day, we were driving around as a family, and I was like, I really like this song. And my wife was like, it's so mopey. And my kid's like, yeah, that's his jam. Like round here, counting crows, like 13 minute live version, like where you're like, or like raining in Baltimore, you're like, oh, oh that's sound like, I'm a pretty mopey person, mm. but I just see the value of not like rolling around in that. So I think there's a couple of things. One, most goals are optimistic lies. So if you say, I want to write a book and you don't then plan time in your week to do that, it's a fun thing to say, but it's just not true. Mm. Um, I think sometimes just going, well, how much time do you actually have in your week to devote to it and be be kind to yourself? And we tend to, the other thing is like, we think goals have to be difficult or miserable to count. I think that's a big part of it. I'll meet people that'll say, John... I'm going to get in shape. I'll go, that's great. I'll go, what are you going to do? And they say, I'm going to run. I go, do you like running? They go, no, I hate it. Oh, I hate it. That's how I know it's good for me. And I think, <laughs> it's, you're not going to do it. That sounds that sounds miserable. And so that was one of the, the, if you said, what was the most surprising thing in the research? It was that when you add fun to your goal, you're more likely to succeed. Yeah. There's two factors you look at when you're studying, in my opinion, leadership, goal setting, whatever. You look at satisfaction and performance. Satisfaction is how did I feel during the endeavor, the, the goal? Performance is how did I actually do? And any principle, whether it's me or any other author, it better raise both. Because let's say I raise the satisfaction. Like it's a funny book, you enjoy it, but you don't improve your performance. You end up smiling all the way to last place. Mm-hmm. But let's say I raise the performance, like you crush that performance, but your satisfaction doesn't change or your satisfaction plummets. Like we've all met people who are really successful and really unhappy. And you go, how can those two things exist at the same time? They exist because they overfocus on their success and never cared about their satisfaction, or they were like, you know what? I'm going to be miserable for like 62 years, but then I'm going to move to like Palm Springs and get a golf cart and it's all going to change. And yeah. like, I think mm-hmm. you're putting a lot of pressure on that <laughs> golf cart. You're going to practice misery yeah. for six decades and then think like a beach house is going to change that. Like, oh, that's not how it works. So I think a lot of people don't make their goal fun enough because they don't think they have the permission to or they've bought into modern motivational theory, which is like if your dream doesn't scare you, it's not big enough, like and we scream these things at each other, and then you go, Oh I kind of hate this goal, i don't want to do it yeah you yeah. shouldn't you shouldn't want to do that one you know, I wonder, and maybe I think we're probably going to
0: we're probably referring to the same thing, but I wonder if the word struggle is just misdefined, like for example, you mentioned the idea of happiness, right, and that you are a self described melancholy person that you work really hard at being positive and working to be positive and it's hard work and i think that's right like for example i exercise every day i don't love it to have somebody say let's do 50 burpees after 3 years of doing that every day it's not fun it's really hard but it's it's something i have to do because like you i think my default can be can be melancholy, you know. I'm a, I'm, I've been on the radio for twenty five years. I mean, they're they you know, I've I've covered wars. I've seen things that are really hard. Um,
1: yeah, that leave a that leave a residue. And I think the key there. So I always tell people the key is not like the slide I use. Once I kind of say, "Here is what the research showed," I say you should all be disagreeing with this idea right now because I know everybody in the crowd's going. This guy doesn't know about the 10 things at my job that suck. Like, my job has hard parts. Like, there's things I have to, and then I'll say, You're all thinking some form of this. Let's be honest, kale isn't fun. Hmm. You know, there's I parts like of you. I like kale, personally. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of people that do. I always <laughs> tell people it tastes like wet sadness, but we can agree to disagree <laughs> on that. But or like you can always tell how bad a vegetable is based on how much bacon they ask to do the heavy lifting. When somebody goes, I love Brussels sprouts. I go, What's in that recipe? They go, Cinnamon, honey, bacon. (laughs) Like yeah, all those other items are like carrying the Brussels sprout. But I think that the key there is it's not about having fun. It's about making it fun. Like having fun is going on vacation. Making it fun is going. Here's the ten things I need to do because I know that the value they bring me is great and it's long term. And it makes me healthier and happier. Um, so how do I add some fun to there? You know, to that situation? And the, the ways that we studied, there's kind of two forms. There's um, how do you add a little bit of reward or a little bit of consequence? Because I would argue that you've got some consequence. You don't want to waste the money. Like you've invested in it. You don't want to disappoint the person. Like if, if you skipped a bunch of days, I'm assuming that person go, Hey, what's going on, guy? Like, you know, like I thought we were going to do this. And yeah. so you just get creative and the other thing is where I think a lot of people stumble is it's mature and healthy to go, I need another person to help make sure I do this. Yeah, Like I figured that out about myself. There's some people that would feel ashamed of that and go, I should just be strong enough to do it on my own. That's no no no. Like if you need to go to orange theory and have 10 other people around you, like awesome, go do that. If you need to walk around the neighborhood with a friend and a coffee cuz that's your form of exercise, awesome, go do that. Like give your like be kind to yourself with how you, you know, actually do the thing that's difficult.
0: Yeah. John, um your your most recent book, uh which was just released this year in 2021 is called Soundtracks, uh The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. So Explain the idea behind this a bit, like in the context of this book. What is a soundtrack?
1: So it's a phrase that I use for a repetitive thought, and I, you know, I've heard people say uh, a thought is like a leaf on a river or a car yeah. on the highway, and a car in the let sky. It go, yeah, right, yeah. But for me, I like soundtrack because they have the potential to change the entire moment, and often without you even knowing. And so, you know, if you open up on a movie scene and there's this white picket fence in this small house and kids frolicking, but then they play terrifying music, you start to go, wait a second, don't, yeah, there could be a creepy clown in the sewer. Like, don't go in that house. It's quiet, it's too quiet, where if they play a positive song, they play Vanessa Carlton, Thousand Miles, all of a sudden you go, oh, this is a rom-com, like everything's going to be all right. And so it was my phrase to go, okay, what are the repetitive thoughts that you're listening to that might be changing your day, your conversations, your you know level of bravery with a situation that you don't even know it's happening? And then what if we could do something about that? So how
0: do you, I mean, as an overthinker myself and as somebody who can really... You know, has to get knocked off of it. And it sounds like you oftentimes go to your your partner to your wife, I do the same, who's just much more rational and uh, emotionally stable and just generally better person than me, uh, who helps me through it. How do you start to break through that, that pattern?
1: Well, so the the easiest way to do it, like the simplest way to go, do I have any broken soundtracks? Uh, And a broken soundtrack is one that's, it's negative. It's not helping you. I always tell people, write down something you want to do. Like just write down, you know, and it doesn't have to be massive. It can be, I want to call a friend or I want to start my own podcast. I want to write a book, you know, write down something you want to do. And then just listen to your first response. Listen to the thoughts that come next. Like listen to your reaction because every reaction is an education and if your reaction is somebody smarter has already written that book um who are you to ask that person out um, this is no time to change jobs like the world's upside down you can't do that if it's not positive it might be a broken soundtrack and then the three questions that i that i always teach people to ask is i say number one is it true is the thing i'm telling myself about myself or this situation is it true second question is it helpful when I listen to it, does it push me forward or does it pull me back? And number three, is it kind? If I said it to a friend, would they still want to be my friend? And the questions are so simple. The words are so obvious, but they're Trojan horse questions. Because if you spend any time with them, you'll suddenly go, whoa, wait a second. There's more here going on. That's what's been fun about doing podcasts about the book. I was on a podcast and I said the three questions and the host got quiet. and He said, oh, no. And I was like, what? He said, I've had the number one podcast in my category for the last nine months and the soundtrack that I've been listening to is you're just lucky, you're just lucky, you're just hmm. lucky. And he said, if a friend had worked for nine months really hard on a project, I'd never tell them you're just lucky, you're just lucky, you're just lucky.
0: I, I remember hearing um, about this idea that thoughts are simply electricity, just a, just an electrical current going through our brains, that, that actually thoughts are meaningless. I wonder if – the flip side of that is when we have negative thoughts or we um, tell ourselves you know, we're not that great or wh- whatever it is that we tell ourselves because we, we're often our own worst critics. We're like that little devil on our shoulder that's just saying bad things to ourselves all the time. Are thoughts the antidote to that? I mean is, it, is some of this about the story we tell ourselves and being quote unquote disciplined about telling ourselves a better story?
1: Well, I think the the thing I always come back to is like the antidote to overthinking isn't more thinking; it's it's action, and so that's that's also the difference when somebody says, "Okay, John." I- how do I know the difference between overthinking and being prepared or overthinking and I'm I'm analytical or I'm detailed. I always say being prepared always leads to a decision and an action. Overthinking always leads to more thinking. So for me, I'm always trying to get you to go, okay, well, what does that mean and what do we do with it? How do we take that to action? And so I think it's really important to say, okay, here's this thought I had. I don't think it's true. Here's the thought I'd like to have instead. How do I, you know, kind of make that a part of my life? And how do I reflect that in my actions? And so like the whole core of the book is retire broken thoughts or broken soundtracks, replace them with new ones and repeat the new ones. So often they become as automatic as the old ones. And so that, you know, like one of the examples is, can you tie the thought that you're trying to make part of your life to a symbol? Um, Symbols are powerful ways to remind yourself of something that's true. And so like I tell people, You know, again, I I try to break it to the practical because then I think you can actually do it. So I'll say, okay, if you want to make a symbol, and there's so many examples where people would, you know, write me in and go, oh, I I picked up a rock at the top of this climb I did with my sister to remind myself that the view, you know, it's a hard climb, but the view at the top is worth it. And I keep it on my desk because I'm going to do other hard stuff. And so now it's not just an electrical current. It's a physical rock that's on her desk. And so I'm always trying to help people go, here's some thoughts you're having If they're not the thoughts you want, let's figure out the thoughts you want. And then let's tie those thoughts to real actions and real things so that you have a really good chance. Like the problem is I'll work with people and they go, yeah, I've got this 10-year-old thought and... My new soundtrack's not working. And I'll say, you gave the problem 10 years to develop and the solution a week. And so a soundtrack that I'll tell people to use is never give the problem a year and the solution a week. Um, And and so that's what I'm always trying to get to is what's something we can actually do? Because that's when it gets helpful. I haven't really helped people if I've just given them a bunch of fortune cookies and they go, "Uh, I don't know what to do with this.
0: Yeah. Um, before I let you go, John, I I wanna ask you one last question. Um when you think about the idea of leadership, do you think that leaders are born or, or do you think that people learn how to become leaders over the course of their lives?
1: I think it's a mix. I think that there are some people who maybe personality type, maybe, you know, who they are as a person leads them more toward leadership. As soon as you have more than one kid, you're like, oh they came with some stuff already. Like I have two daughters and, you know, they're very different and they grew up in the same house. And so I do believe that there's things that maybe predispose you, um, for leadership, but I think there's also so many great examples of people that have learned it over the years. And, you know, whether that's through opportunities, whether they were deliberate and said, I've got to lead this. Um, so yeah, I think it's a mix.
0: It's John Acuff. He's the author of
1: seven books and
0: host of the podcast All It Takes is a Goal. By the way, in 2018, John briefly decided to try out stand-up comedy. His show ran for two nights at a comedy club in Nashville and sold out in 72 hours. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions.
2: Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be.